Hello and welcome to the sixth ever Anarchist Communist uh, podcast called At The CAF. Today we are actually in a CAF and we're going to be talking today about work and anarchism and anarchist approaches to work. Uh, but just before we get started, I want to do a little bit about our next podcast, which is going to be on representative democracy and why it doesn't make sense for the working classes in the UK to get involved with the Labour Party. But... First of all, I should introduce you all to our guest today. Name is James. He's from Free University and is a member of the Anarchist Research Group. He's a postgraduate researcher and he's going to be talking today about work. Um, I'm going to start with a question about, is it even possible? What's the point of talking about the work? Is it possible to imagine a world without it? Uh, what do you think, James? That's a very good question, Sam. Uh, so certainly uh, a lot of anarchist thinkers throughout history uh, have invited their audiences to imagine a world with much less work uh, quantitatively than uh, we have in it now. The most famous example probably is Peter Kropotkin, Russian anarchist, in The Conquest of Bread, one of his most famous books. He predicts that, quote, an economic system a trifle more enlightened uh, than the one he sees about him would let future generations cry enough we have enough coal and bread and raiment, which means clothes, let's rest and consider how best to use our powers and how best to employ our leisure. So Kropotkin is not alone among anarchist thinkers at that time in thinking about a much shorter working day. In practice, based on technology that was available in the last couple of decades of the 1800s when Kropotkin was writing, in practice he anticipated that a working day of about three or four hours might suffice to provide the whole population with what they would need or want realistically. And across the channel, a lot of American anarchists at the time also agreed with him. A lot of people are aware of anarchists' participation in the eight-hour day movement, the, the reduction, uh, famous reduction of the working day to eight hours that occurred around that time through the, uh, the unfortunate events of the Haymarket Affair. But what not a lot of people may realise is that a lot of the anarchists uh, involved in campaigning for the eight-hour day movement appear to have only thought of eight hours uh, as a transitional demand to a much, much shorter work day, even after day. A, a good example of that is Lucy Parsons' uh, essay, The Principles of Anarchism, uh, which is about 1905. She said that a two or three or four hour day uh, of easy, healthful labour would produce all the comforts and luxuries that people could need. So she was in complete agreement with Kropotkin in imagining a very, very short work day, even by modern standards. Johann Most, who was another anarchist in America at the time, he, he actually famously disparaged anarchist participation in the eight-hour movement, not because he was opposed to the eight-hour day, but because he thought it wasn't radical enough. Most also believed in a society which would have by far the greater part of the day being available for people's leisure. So there were debates amongst the anarchist movement at the time on, on, on shorter hours, but there was pretty much a consensus that anarchists thought the hours of work by, by those standards, but also by modern standards, should be much, much shorter, much, much shorter than we have today. Okay, so let's break it down a little bit. So we're sitting in a bar right now, and if the people behind the bar weren't working, we wouldn't be able to get our drinks. And if the people who go out every day and grow food in the fields didn't do that, we'd go hungry. So surely work is just a fact of life, isn't it? Well, I think a lot of anarchists have questioned that idea, to be, to be completely honest with you. In Kropotkin's case, obviously dealing with, in many respects, a much simpler economy than we have today. He identified, even then, a lot of tasks that he didn't think were, were quite necessary. So uh, even in the days before mass marketing, telesales, 
jobs that a lot of people identify as not very useful, not providing things that people, ordinary people actually want or need. Even in his day, Kropotkin identified uh, a lot of those. When he talks about optimizing the economy along anarchist lines, for him it was a project of removing uh, waste. And when we say that, we, we don't really mean waste in, in the monetary sense, waste in an economic sense. Kropotkin was appalled, really, by waste of what he called waste of human energy. So looking all around him at the productive economy in the late 1800s, he could already identify that a lot of people were being required to do jobs that weren't, weren't directly contributing to anyone's well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, some jobs, he said, were injurious to people, actively injurious to consumers, others were just useless. And also in his day, and certainly in ours, he identified that there was a lot of overproduction, actually. So a lot of things that we do actually want and need, things like food and clothing, in practice, in point of fact, both in Kropotkin's day and in ours, end up either stockpiling in warehouses or, uh, or gathering mold in, uh, in skips. Um, we actually overproduce a lot of the basic commodities that we use on a day-to-day basis. So for Kropotkin, one of the big projects of anarchist economics was actually to streamline the economy, to be based around people's needs and wants directly, rather than to have these kind of perverse incentives that would artificially cause people to work very long hours doing things that weren't particularly useful. I guess in the example I gave of the bar stuff, their only need is to be here because someone needs them to take the money. If work disappeared and irrelevant work disappeared, would that mean mass unemployment? What's the context here of work? Don't we need it? There are two ways in which we can understand people needing to work. So on one level, there are things that that people need and want to survive. There there are things like food, clothing, that list that Kropotkin gave, fuel, housing, food and so on. We as a society need to produce a certain amount of that. How efficiently we can do that, and especially with productive technologies, how how quickly and with how little human labour we can do that, is, is a really interesting question. On an artificial level... Uh, everybody needs to work because of how society is, is set up. And this is where Kropotkin's idea of a, an economy based on, directly on meeting needs, as you said, with the least waste of human energy comes into play. Kropotkin thought, and certainly a lot of anarchists have thought, that the, the system of distribution that we have, where people use wages that they receive from work as the only real way of getting access to the things they need and want, buying things, that that was an outdated system. At the time, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, when a lot of these anarchists were, were early anarchists were active, changes in, in technology and in the, the ability of machinery to produce things, so the advent of steam and electricity and other technologies of production that were completely revolutionary, were completely changing the face of society, really inspired a lot of people in Kropotkin's set. And they believed and they, and they argued that a system of distribution based on surrendering wages in exchange for a trickle of products that you'd need. You know, so you, you, you go to work every day, regardless of how productive your work is, you know, you're given a, a wage or a salary of some arbitrary amount, you, you trade that off for the things that you need. Kropotkin thought that was actually an outdated system. It, it might have been appropriate, he thought, for, you know, medieval times before we actually had, in his day, steam engines, electricity, things that completely transform our ability to produce basic basic products. And to his mind, he he viewed a need-based economy, an economy based directly on the fulfillment of needs with minimal expenditure of energy, as just a logical conclusion of of developments in his time. He thought that the the time of of a a wage and price-based monetary and economic system was just outdated, really outmoded, that its time had passed.
So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the more modern thinkers on this uh, area? So in the 20th century, two really, really major thinkers in the anarchist tradition both advocated for the massive reduction of the working day, but in very different ways. And so on, on the one hand, there's a guy called Murray Butchin, who some of your listeners probably would have heard of, uh, in a book called Post-Scarcity Anarchism. He paints a picture uh, of a, a future anarchist society in which cybernetic technology, so computer numerical control of uh, industrial technologies and so on, really and truly abolish work as we understand it. So whereas Kropotkin and the other 19th century anarchists thought they might be able to cut the working day down to three or four hours, uh, by Butchin's time, dawn of kind of the computerized revolution in, in technological production, Butchin really depicts an anarchist economy in which work as we understand it has vanished and, and, and in which everything we do really, you know, is, is unconstrained, is leisurely. Likewise, uh, another anarchist called Bob Black wrote an essay called The Abolition of Work, which has been quite widely publicized. What's interesting, though, is that although Bob Black and Butchin on some level are both advocating for the abolition of work or the massive reduction of work, they were in a fairly huge disagreement about how that was to come about. And what it actually shows is uh, two quite different ways that anarchists have thought about the nature of work and consequently about how they would reduce or get rid of it. So on the one hand, Murray Butchin's version of a, of a workless society is heavily contingent on technology. So very much like Kropotkin, who was really inspired by steam technology, by electricity and things like that. Butchin looks to computer automation as a real basis for, for what he means when he says to abolish work. So Butchin and Kropotkin likewise, when they talk about work being eliminated, they literally mean machines will do the work for us, will we'll lead lives of leisure um, and just consume the products that come out of the machines. So for Bob Black, it's quite a different story. And in the abolition of work, this essay that he wrote, he doesn't put quite as much faith uh, in technology, which is quite surprising. So when Black talks about the abolition of work, uh, he's not talking about a, a kind of robo-utopia in which every human task, productive human task or whatever that we have in the present day is, is done by machines. For Bob Black, well, first of all, he points to quite an interesting problem to do with how we understand the relationship between technology and work. So he points to uh, the fact that actually... A lot of these uh, great revolutions in, in workplace technology that uh, massively reduce uh, the amount of labor that people spend on individual work tasks, historically speaking, these haven't uh, reliably resulted in shorter working hours. And, and he points to this, this fact. Some non-anarchist thinkers have, have brought this to light as well and introduced it. So there's a book by uh, an academic called Juliet Shaw, who called The Overworked American, where she charts the average estimated length of the working day across four centuries of technological development. Um, and the, the problem, really, is that just labour-saving technology, as we call it, doesn't automatically guarantee that the working day will get shorter. And so Bob Black plays on this problem, um, and he, he, for that reason, he doesn't put a lot of faith just in the power of technology to abolish work. And for him... He, he actually channels the utopian socialist Charles Fourier in calling for the reimagination of a lot of things that we consider to be work uh, as a type of play. So for Bob Black, there's a real psychological element to it, right? For, um, in the abolition of work, he portrays work as partly a state of mind. And he's not talking about necessarily just 
making it so that nobody ever does what we'd now call a work task. He's interested in changing how we perceive work. So if we all go through our lives performing productive tasks that keep us alive, that produce useful things, for example, or keep us safe or happy, if we don't believe that we are working, if we don't understand that as a type of work anymore, if we experience that as a type of play or an enjoyable activity, then to him, that counts as the abolition of work. Someone like Butchin or Kropotkin really wouldn't accept that definition. Okay, so Butchin and, and Black did fall out over many things, but this, this may well have been one of them. For somebody like Butchin, uh, who's much more closely working in the same tradition as Kropotkin, the abolition of work is an objective thing, independent of whether uh, we think we're working or not. There's this thing that's called work. We can remove it physically by automating it, by creating and using machines to produce things we need and living in a way that we don't have to work for a living anymore. Thinkers in that, in that strand of, of anarchist thought on work would completely reject Black's vision. They would say this isn't really the abolition of work. People are still working by other means. You know, they're just pretending, or it feels it feels like it's not work, but it is. Kind of. According to Bob Black, how do we go through the psychological transformation required to stop work being work? Well, as I said, um, so Bob Black channels this utopian socialist uh, Fourier, and Bob Black says, and I, and I quote, that the secret uh, of turning work into play is to arrange useful activities to take advantage of whatever it is that various people at various times in fact enjoy doing so that's not much of a roadmap i mean there there are some big gaps there as you can see there's an empirical approach he presumably thinks that we should break down work tasks identify what's pleasurable about them and then arrange them in such a way that people are always doing them in a a pleasurable way but there there i mean there are big problems as you can see with, with this idea one possible interpretation that, that, that seems to come up is that actually there, there might be some necessary work tasks that simply can't be reimagined as play. A lot of people have uh, really quite distasteful jobs in the present day, and a lot of those jobs are productive, even essential to human society. As Bob Black uh, makes this point, I mean, he, he, he talks a, a great deal about what's unpleasant about uh, work. He's one of the great polemicists against work. But when push comes to shove, it's difficult for, uh, I think, for a lot of people to imagine uh, how certain types of jobs could be imagined as playful. So cleaning toilets, for example, that's a, a task that could be done by a person or by a machine. Uh, but if we're insisting that it should be done by a person, then it's difficult to see how you can make that a, a fun game. Another problem with this idea of, of game, what we now call like the gamification uh, of work is not just that there are some tasks that, that, that just can't be turned into fun, that can't be made playful, but uh, you could make the argument that there are some tasks that, whilst they might be fun in certain circumstances, we can't rely on enough people finding them fun at the right times. I mean, so the, the, the uh, as you said, various people at various times, well, there are some currently existing work tasks, things to do with, say, agriculture, firefighting would be another one, where it's difficult to imagine being able to rely on enough people finding them fun. Taking the case of agriculture, okay, we can imagine a world in which people farm grains and food and they do find certain parts of that task enjoyable. But all it would take in that society for uh, big problems to, to come in is for not enough people one year to enjoy playing at harvesting grain or siloing grain or delivering grain to thousands of uh, markets around the country or, you know, whatever. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, the problem there really as well as that this change takes place in the human mind rather than more, more, more than in physical reality. So it's difficult, I think, to 
anticipate whether people will actually find what they're doing playful or not. Do you know what I mean? There's there's a sense in which anarchists like Butchin and Kropotkin, who imagine a much more physical abolition of work, you know, the literal removal of work tasks, of the, of the need to perform work tasks by machinery, is a sense in which that's m- more predictable, more reliable. It doesn't matter if people change their radically change their minds about whether work is enjoyable or not. They can just do whatever they want in their leisure time, and, and, and the, the question's kind of mooted uh, by that, you know. So how did these two thinkers end up with such radically different conclusions? So by the middle of the 20th century, a lot of people were beginning to realise that the types of high technology or certain types of high technology that we were using in day-to-day life and also in industry were having a disastrous effect on the environment. It wasn't really known in Kropotkin's time in the the 19th century that, for example, fossil fuel uh, use, uh, fundamental to computer technology in in a lot of ways, certainly to our electrical power systems at the moment, were really creating quite significant environmental peril. And whilst uh, Black himself in The Abolition of Work doesn't talk a great deal about environmental protection, he does say that he's no gadget freak. I mean, you know, he he is more techno-skeptical by a long shot than than Butchin. And I think this is probably something to do with why he doesn't find Butchin's ideas convincing. Uh, Bob Black in the 1980s was part of a uh, an American anarchist circle uh, based around a magazine called The Fifth Estate. And some of Black's associates in that milieu were people like uh, John Zerzan, who's one of the most famous proponents of what's sometimes called anarcho-primitivism, which is a, a variant, I guess, of anarchism that takes techno-skepticism extremely seriously, to the point of suggesting that really there's an onus on humanity to uh, to strip back high technology rather than to uh, maintain or augment it. And so whilst Bob Black himself uh, is not is not a necessarily an anarcho-primitivist, these kinds of kinds of revelations about environmental protection really factor in uh, to this to this debate and to, and to a skepticism about the about whether technology can be used mm. for good, uh, whether it whether it can be purposed by uh, anarchists or other by ordinary people, I suppose, to to meet their needs without destroying the earth, basically, and without imperiling humanity. And more recently, in terms of, I mean, these two thinkers really, I guess, are just examples of, uh, of general tendencies within anarchism. More recently, Uri Gordon has identified these two impetuses in the anarchist movement of the 20th and now the 21st centuries as Promethean and, uh, and Primitivist, these two seemingly contradictory attitudes within movement anarchism. Uh, and they have to do with the, with the use of technology. So there's an idea that there are Promethean anarchists based on the nomenclature of the Greek mythical figure Prometheus who stole fire from the gods in the myth. Uh, Promethean anarchists are, generally speaking, those who want to use technology, uh, take technology from capitalism and, and give it to the people, you know, use, use it for common, the common weal, for the common good. And primitivism as, as a contradictory drive within anarchist thought is this idea that actually modern technology in any sense is is ultimately harmful is 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 not possible to rehabilitate for benign use by human beings and this is a debate that didn't really uh, exist in uh, in 19th century anarchism it's been influenced obviously by the, the rise of the environmental uh, movement by by the recognition really that fossil fuel economy is destructive but within contemporary anarchism it's it's led to an increasingly unfavourable perspective on thinkers like Butchin uh, and Kropotkin in terms of their optimism about the use of technology. So 
the the view that an anarchist economy can be based on the use of high-tech automation, robotics, computer systems, and so on. Whilst it's not been outright rejected, it's, it's often been problematized, at least, by people who suggest that Butchin and perhaps Kropotkin before him were, were techno-utopians, right? Optimists uh, to a fault about the ability of humans to use technology without, well, to use automation technology to abolish work. So to me, it sounds like that there's problems or challenges in both theorists. Does that mean anarchists should give up on trying to abolish work and move on to other issues? Some contemporary writers uh, on anarchism have looked at the problems with, with both of these, especially so especially with the, um, the Butchin-style uh, technical high-tech work abolition program, and concluded that basically the abolition of work, whatever previous anarchists thought about it, uh, is something that's not attainable right now, either because of environmental constraints or, or other types of constraints. Uh, and there seems to be, yeah, uh, a tendency within contemporary anarchism to kind of dismiss people like Bookchin as, as overly utopian. You know, anarchists can't promise the abolition of work in, in this way. Um, so do you think that the struggle to abolish work can distract from class politics? Well, certainly... People like Butchin and Kropotkin saw massive reductions in the working day as the epitome of class struggle politics, really. If we understand class politics, class struggle as concerning ordinary conditions of ordinary people's lives, Butchin, Kropotkin, other other social anarchists who've argued for massive reductions or close to abolition have seen this as a logical conclusion. if you, you know, uh, early anarchists were involved in, in struggles, in struggles, uh, transitional struggles for shorter hours. In one way, you can look at the uh, the total abolition of work, the end of the work-based society, as a logical conclusion uh, of what people struggle for in, in day-to-day working conditions terms: shorter hours, better remuneration, less managerial control over our lives, and so on. Really, I, I think that a lot of anarchists who've, who've looked at work abolition have viewed it as the kind of the epitome of, of class struggle politics. Um, interestingly, with the disagreement between Murray Butchin and, and Bob Black in the 70s and 80s, Butchin uh, tended to attack Bob Black and, and his associates uh, as almost as if they were defectors from, from class struggle politics, really. He, he characterised, although he never called Blacklist directly, he appeared to characterise new anarchists like Bob Black as uh, lifestyle anarchists. He used his terminology of lifestyleism. And uh, in retort, uh, Bob Black, in a really withering attack on, on Murray Butchin, portrayed him as a sort of stuffy uh, old guard class struggle vanguardist, you know, as, as an emblem of, of, of class struggle politics that was kind of uh, obsolete. Um, and I mean, Black outside of the abolition of work, wrote a book called Anarchy After Leftism. He characterised himself as a post-left anarchist. As a, you know, uh, Black, Black imagined his, his anarchism, which, okay, contained within it a post-work element, uh, also as a post-left anarchist, anarchy devoid of, of, of the traditional signifiers of the left. But Butchin certainly viewed the abolition of work as the epitome of class struggle anarchism, the ultimate goal of... Uh, the struggle for working people's freedom from the slavery of work. I'm a big fan of Bakunin. Bakunin talks a lot about the role of the expert and how that could be a really negative thing. So can we democratise the sort of high technology that would be needed, uh, potentially, if we were to abolish work? 
It's a really good question. It's quite key to the use of high technology for liberation from anything, really. The obvious problem with the idea of, of an anarchist economics based on high technology is that a lot of high technology has developed as part of capitalist institutions that are incredibly complex and are based on the work of technical experts. And they're not understood by ordinary people, by, by what we might call consumers, by, by the people who will be the recipients of the output of productive technology. So there's an important adjacent question. Can high technologies like robotics, like automation, can they be democratically controlled or are you going to end up with a technocracy? Uh, people, you know, the one person in a thousand who understands how to program the robot, are they going to end up in, in a position of hierarchical power over the, the rest of the community? It's not a question that you can brush off lightly. Bookchin anticipated uh, this problem. He tries to draw up a vision of a, a decentralized society that certainly channels Kropotkin's localism, in which uh, technologies of automation will A, be democratically controlled, be ecologically sustainable, and so on. Uh, but I think, it, I think it's really an open question for anarchism and the politics of technology today. What I would say is, based on uh, where we are now, when we look at the latest cutting edge of production technology, when you talk about the abolition of work today, people think about technologies like 3D printing, uh, additive manufacturing, AI, you know, uh, machine learning, things like that. Certainly with, with additive manufacturing, I think with all of these technologies, the jury is really out on whether they're democratizable. Are they going to be monopolized by powerful people, whether they're economically powerful or politically powerful people? Um, I would say about the, the, the kind of 3D printing maker culture as it exists, it's not, a, it's not an, an explicitly anarchist uh, scene, but the tendency in some of these novel production technologies is actually towards, first of all, towards localized customization uh, of the output and also towards a DIY ethic. When you think about how uh, the sort of file sharing software uh, open source movement took place as a, as a kind of counterculture to companies like Microsoft in the late 1990s, the early 2000s, Today, with cutting-edge technologies of production like the 3D printing community, there is that DIY ethic in which people reverse engineer all the time. They constantly modify their machines. They, they share uh, the templates for producing plastic objects, for example, without profit motive. There's a mutual aid-type feeling in those types of industries at the moment. Whether those will be monopolized and capitalized by big corporations, you know, is an open question. But there's at least a, an element that it could go both ways. Do you know what I mean? I think with any emerging technology, whether it's software, whether it's additive manufacturing, even up to including sort of AI uh, software, there are there's the potential for a liberatory use. There's a potential for DIY, democratized use of, of technologies. There, there, there often is. And there's also the potential for technologies to be co-opted, to be, to be dominated by either the interests of capital or by otherwise politically powerful interests. There's an interesting question as to whether there are some technologies that just can't be made liberatory. I think, to be honest, you know, you, you can look at some technologies. I think a lot of us would accept that some technologies carry with them inherently exploitive, inherently destructive mm. capacity. So um, I think a lot of people would quite reasonably say, in imagining can technologies be used differently, we'd say things like, well, can you find a liberatory use for a Hellfire missile, for example? There, there, yeah. there are technologies uh, of surveillance, of destruction, of oppression, really, that, that can't 
we can't really imagine being repurposed for, for class struggle purposes or being under democratic control. But certainly, I, I would say that the, the, the bleeding edge of productive technologies that people bang on about when they talk about the abolition of work today, things like additive manufacturing, machine learning, uh, these the, these have got a potential for a DIY culture to emerge around them and, and to, to the tendency to, to be towards local uh, control, customization uh, by consumers, consumer control basically, rather than sort of control of private companies and, and, and powerful actors. I guess as well, it, it will depend on the quality of the education system in any society, wouldn't it? Like if, yeah, if people are highly trained um, and people have the access to the education. So we've sort of touched on this already, but I think it's worth going back to. So this sort of future vision of society where a lot of things are have technology providing services and doing things. What would be the effects on the environment? And could it be even worse for the planet than the current capitalist sort of way of doing things? Yeah, well, as, as we touched on a bit earlier, uh, a lot of the, the, most, the most recent uh, rejection of, of certain types of anarchist work abolition, a, a lot of the, um, the rejection of, say, Bookchin or Kropotkin's style of, of uh, techno-oriented anarchism <laughs> has been about environmental degradation. So I think the, the jury is actually out. Um, there, the, now, certainly, we can make the argument that computing technology, for example, is currently, under our current system, reliant on, on the fossil fuel economy. I think very few people at this point would argue that the fossil fuel economy is in any sense sustainable, <laughs> uh, not even neutral for the environment. You know, it, yeah. it, it's quite clear that the, the, uh, the biggest threat to, to human survival in the medium to long term is, is the continued use of fossil fuels right now. So the, to, to our best guess, the, uh, the use of fossil fuels to, 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 to power power stations and also surface transport is a huge threat to any human society, whether it's anarchist or whether it's our current business as usual society or any other. I, I, I think that the, the idea that uh, a workless or very nearly workless society necessarily because it uses high technology would uh, would destroy the environment needs, needs a bit of critical re-evaluation. So on the face of it, we can say that robotics, uh, the technologies of automation, use a lot of the same pollutive, environmentally destructive technologies as, as home computing, as ICT. Um, and for that reason, you know, hardcore uh, primitivists or, or even uh, people with a, you know, a commitment to, to environmental protection in any sense might, might think twice before uh, endorsing full automation or something like that. Um, I think you've got to look at the, the environmental costs of the work-based society in, in factoring this in. So when we try and imagine a society without work, we're imagining a society without commuting. Most anarchists who thought of a materially work-abolishing society like Butchin and Kropotkin have imagined a localism that's completely impossible under capitalism. So you look at the current world system of trade, our uh, everyday supermarket shop is based on the premise of shipping uh, goods halfway across the world, right? The transportation of goods and people over enormous distances, almost universally with fossil fuel technology, with cars, but frankly as well with the logistics networks that sustain consumer capitalism as it is now, lorries driving from uh, one point, from point A to point B every day, just as a basis of ordinary human consumption. That's the sort of thing that, uh, well, certainly... Murray Butchin's version of a workable society seems to negate a lot of that. Kropotkin, Butchin, a lot of uh, work, work reducers in the anarchist tradition have imagined uh, highly localised communities of production, not uh, communities that forego exotic products because they, you know, out of some responsibility for the environment, but actually just uh, 
rational, optimized modes of high-tech production that produce these things on site. Frankly, I think the jury's out on whether the, the abolition of international logistics uh, would offset the, the pollutive aspects of localized, uh, low-intensity, low-capital labor-saving technologies. Certainly with the use of things like bioplastics and 3D printing, a lot of the default assumptions about what's environmentally sustainably possible in terms of human work replacement, a lot of that's not recognized in, in the current literature. Fantastic. Um, so I guess right now, and I do mean right now, there's um, a lot of material being put out about a post-work society that's not from an anarchist tradition. Well, what's interesting in those ideas and what can both anarchists and non-anarchists learn from each other in the field of post-work? So it's, it's really interesting. Just uh, just as a lot of anarchist writers or writers, people writing about anarchism have seemingly become a bit more sceptical about the possibilities for radically reducing the working day. And there's you know, a lot of scepticism about work abolition has, has appeared in, in recent anarchist writing. Uh, it's coincided, it seems like, with a, quite a recent uptick in mainstream non-anarchist post-work literature, as it's, as it's being called. So only in the last couple of uh, years, a number of quite provocative, influential books have come out agitating uh, for what's being called post-work political agenda. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of ways this cashes out. Some people talk uh, about the provision of a, of a UBI, a universal basic income, or of UBS, universal basic services, as, as possible measures to, to eat, well, either to counteract technological unemployment, which is the phenomenon of people not not being able to find work because they, their jobs have been automated out of existence, for example. Whether, whether capitalism can manage that problem or not is a, a separate and interesting question. But certainly there's been a resurgence in in the political idea that, that work in some form could be reduced. The TUC, for example, recently came out uh, in explicit support of the four-day week, although they, they did say it might take uh, up to 100 <laughs> years. That was their goal for um, 2100. So certainly um, Kropotkin or Butchin or anyone else in the, in the work abolitionist or work massive work reductionist anarchist tradition would see that as a, a bit of a pessimistic projection. But there is a sense that uh, work reduction is back on the table in, in mainstream politics, uh, much more than, than, it, than it would have been even 40 years ago. Well, I think Kropotkin really un- uniquely brings to the, the post-work problem, if you can call it that. I think a lot of modern post-work authors, in the, not in the anarchist tradition, could benefit from, is that when you, when you get to the bottom of it, Kropotkin really considers the problem of, of reducing or even removing large amounts of human work as necessitating a kind of, it's almost like the uh, the old time and motion studies, but the, the idea of an anarchist uh, science of need, where needs are human needs are identified in quite a systematic manner. And then there's a, an, an entire discipline of study, if you like, just about meeting human needs with the least amount of human work. This type of thinking uh, did crop up later in, in early 20th century uh, thoughts, mostly directed towards uh, capitalist industry. So Frank Gilbreth and these other time and motion people did eventually systematize uh, what they call time and motion studies, the, the scientific measurement of reducing work. But they, they didn't orient it towards human need. They oriented it towards the needs of capital. Kropotkin, I think, really uniquely develops the... A, a similar science, if you can call it that, where he envisions uh, 
work abolition, work reduction as being a civil society activity where activists, anarchists, whoever, ordinary people systematically identify what what do they need, what do they want, uh, and then just procedurally design uh, localised free democratic systems for meeting those needs, optimised systems for meeting those needs. That's something that I think is underdeveloped in current post-work thought, uh, and especially comes in when, when we think of the problems of post-work as just a legislative uh, issue that we pass off to uh, a sympathetic government or to private capitalists mm. to innovate on. Uh, Kropotkin's version of a science of need, an anarchist science of need, really gets to the heart of localism, direct democratic control of technology, and a lot of the other things that we've talked about uh, in today's session. Um, a, a theme, I think, that emerges from a lot of contemporary post-work literature is the, the idea of a, of a workless or, or much work-reduced society. It's spelled out often in, in, you know, in very revolutionary terms, in very inspiring terms. But when push comes to shove, the, the political imagination that we have in, in the current period tends to lend itself towards imagining post-work, things like UBI, things like four-day week, for example, as traditional policy items for a government to implement. So, we, we, you know, I think there's a tendency to, to reach the point where uh, we think about how we optimise society to, to make best use of new labour-saving technologies, but then we imagine that the, the, the way that this has to come about is by gaining the ear of, of, a, of a government in waiting, convincing a government in waiting that the post-work, that radical work time reduction is a good idea, getting a government elected and then a government implementing post-work, post-work policies uh, by, by law, by legislation. Uh, don't get me wrong, the, the introduction of, of a shorter working week, the introduction of a universal basic income will make a massive impact on ordinary people's lives. But I, I, I think what, what people like Kropotkin uh, really bring to the table in these post-work debates is that the parliamentary route of, of work abolition is not the only side of the problem. Kropotkin and Butchin both spent a lot of time trying to imagine the, the actual technical nuts and bolts of a, of a worker society. What fundamental principles of, of economy have to be changed uh, and can these be done directly by, by ordinary people? It actually ties really, really neatly into the, the question of democratic control of technology. So when, when, we, when we think about the quote-unquote utopias that are depicted by Bookchin or Kropotkin, we already see community, a society in which democratic control over technology is assured because the people who are the beneficiaries of technology, ordinary people, the community, whatever, have been directly involved in the technical nuts and bolts of setting up these kinds of infrastructures. I think when we, when we start to imagine legislative uh, policy solutions as the, the main prevailing form of implementing post-work, post-work ideas or work reduction, even, we tend to limit our political imagination. Either it's a case of a government insisting that private capitalists innovate labour-saving technologies that benefit people, which you know, has, has a problem of, uh, of mediation. It's like how, many, how, many, how many removes are there going to be between ordinary people and technologies of, of work abolition? Uh, is it that ordinary people have to get a, a government to get capitalists to make technology work for the needs of ordinary people? Or can there be a more direct route uh, of DIY innovation, civil society movement and localised uh, uh, you know, adaption to labour-saving technology? Absolutely. There was, um, I can't remember which, who I was reading, but it was saying that as long as wages are kept low, that's a disincentive to automatise technologies under capitalism so as long as capitalism keeps the cost of labor down there's less incentive to industrialize and or automatize uh, so which i yeah i just think a lot of the time capitalism holds us back technology well exactly if the onus of technological innovation is going to stay 
in the private sector, which is what some versions of UBI-type solutions do, do seem to imply, there's a question of whether there are private sector incentives to ever automate work out of existence. Uh, there's a compelling intuition that, that those incentives don't exist. Certainly, it would take high wages in a certain sector to incentivize labor displacing automation because capitalists will only invest in technology, for example, labor saving technology. The alternative, by paying people to do menial drudge jobs, isn't cheaper. So it's another problem with mediating the, the project of, of reducing our working hours from ordinary people through a sympathetic government and again through the private sector. There are too many removes to, to kind of guarantee that the use of technology is going to meet ordinary people's needs. It's going to meet the expectations of ordinary people. So it's, it's, it's why, in my view, and I think this is what anarchism adds to the debate, really, it's why we need to conceptualise the use of labour-saving technology, emancipatory technology, through more direct, unmediated relationships between people and the technology they use. So it's interesting, you sort of touched on this, like, so you're talking a lot here about the conquest of bread, aren't you, where uh, Kropotkin, and the first time I tried to read that, I gave up, because there's a point where he starts almost suggesting ways that a future society would organise the washing up. So do you think that sometimes post-work can get a touch prescriptive in its visions for a future society? Yeah. Well, um, as it happens, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it, it turns out the conquest of bread is the light reading uh, in terms of the science <laughs> of need. Kropotkin uh, wrote another book called Fields, Factories and Workshops, or Industry Combined with Agriculture and Brainwork with Manual Work. Nice catchy 19th century <laughs> title there. Fields, Factories and Workshops goes in one sense, even more into the boring nuts and bolts of uh, radical work reduction, of radical uh, emancipation is possible. He doesn't suggest that it's going to be exciting to do. <laughs> in a way, uh, the boring technical aspects of work abolition, they're central to Kaprokin's theory, um, but I, I think it's enough to know that they're possible, that it's possible to take human needs, rationally, scientifically determine how we can best meet them uh, with as little work as possible. And it's not fun to read. It may not be fun to do, but I think Kropotkin's point here was that the the outcome of it, an, an, an economy based on these kinds of anarchist mm. optimizations, um, that funnily enough were mirrored in, by, by capitalist technicians, just stripped out of the, the human need element. You know, This kind of scientific approach to production, if it was oriented towards human needs, would have great results. Even if the process... Uh, was on the face of it quite boring compared with a, a lot of more exciting anarchist writings about interaction, <laughs> about uh, battles against the state and capital. Sometimes the boring nuts and bolts uh, of anarchist economic design would, I think there's a credible case, yield uh, the best results for people's day-to-day well-being. It's difficult to make systematic, effective agriculture an exciting topic. <laughs> but what is exciting is being able to access as much healthy, nutritious food as you want uh, without money, you know, as much as you need. That, that, that's kind of the, the payload, right? Um, I think Kropotkin attempted to do some scientific analysis in his in his social science uh, work. It's not great reading, but the results of something like Kropotkin's scientific thought in this sense uh, could be quite useful to people. Fantastic. I only really had one last question, uh, which really is, I'm a member of an anarchist organisation that's working towards revolution as soon as we can have it. 
how does what we've been talking about today inform my work and what should I be saying to my colleagues and other workers about post-work? Big question, sorry. (laughs) I think that any uh, social anarchist platform that's faithful to the tradition of of people like Peter Kropotkin is already interested in the massive reduction of the working day. Social anarchists can recognise this advantage that their own tradition has, which is that anarchists of the past and potentially of the present have a tremendous amount to say about a debate that's currently considered quite timely outside of, of the discourse of anarchism. So it's, you know, certainly in the news media, certainly in academic literature, but I think also in everyday conversation, a lot of the themes related to labour-saving technology that are specific to our time in terms of 3D printing, in terms of machine learning, AI, and things like that, those types of topics, justifiably or not, currently have a much broader audience than, than anarchist theory. The, th- the, the great thing is that um, there's a rich anarchist tradition of pretty unique insights into this problem that's currently being missed by the mainstream. So I think it's less about changing the organisational strategies you know, of movement anarchists such as yourself. I'm, I'm not trying to intervene to say, uh, <laughs> oh, do something do, do something differently, do, do this differently. Really, it's just an, uh, another arrow in, uh, in your quiver. Uh, as, as people, if you want to use that word, propagandising for um, an anarchist view of society or... or, or you know, introducing anarchist ideas in, into more mainstream thought, it's useful, potentially useful, to remember the um, really insightful material on, on work reduction, on the, the, the potential future leisure society, uh, and, the, and, the, and the democratic, uh, liberatory use of technology. These are anarchist discourses. These, these, there's uh, a lot of people don't realise that anarchists have something interesting to say, uh, or has and have has historically had something interesting to say about work reduction, about new technologies, about labour-saving technologies. So far from being any kind of corrective to uh, to some existing anarchist strategy, it's just an augmentation of it. Really. And it's and it's you need you don't need to look further than than Kropotkin, you know, the, perhaps one of the archetypal anarchists, to see these uh, these radical arguments for well, at most a four-hour uh, week, a four-hour a four-hour working day, still uh, radical by the standards of modern uh, work reduction. Mm. Strategy. Uh, so just before we wrap up, is there anything else uh, you'd like to say on the subject? He's shaking his head, which does not work so well on a podcast. No, thank you very much for <laughs> you. thank you very much for today, James. It's been really interesting, and thank you to everyone who's listening. As I say, the next podcast is going to be on representative democracy. You can find us at the moment on iTunes and Stitcher, although we are looking to be available on a much wider range of platforms. Let's move forward to a workless society. Thank you.